In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's Sunday afternoon, March 24th, 1991. Crystal and Bruce Dennehy have just realized that their four-year-old son, Michael, has vanished in the middle of the afternoon. It's broad daylight, and he's vanished from a playground in their quiet, safe, little Vancouver Island city of Victoria. Good evening. It's every parent's nightmare to look away for just a second and find that your young son or daughter has disappeared. A couple in Victoria, British Columbia is now living that nightmare. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crimes Season 3, Missing Michael. Episode 2, Hellcats. In this episode, I'm focused on those early hours after Michael vanishes. What is happening on the ground, literally on the field? Michael disappears just before Crystal and her football team, the Hellcats, are about to begin their game. The Hellcats are teammates, but they're also close friends. And what happens on this day will forge those easy young friendships in a deep bond that transcends tragedy and time. In a video taken around that time, a young Crystal Dunahy is wearing leopard print black and white shorts, a red Hellcats penny, and a stylish feathered haircut. She's laughing and huddling with her friends. To understand what happened on the field that fateful Sunday, I've talked to as many Hellcats as I can. Corrine Timmerman is a Hellcat and a longtime friend. In 1991, she's in her 20s, working for the provincial government, living downtown and enjoying her life. I met uh, Crystal and Bruce uh, when I was playing football with with Crystal on the Hellcats. And so I was with um, Crystal and Bruce on the morning that uh, Michael disappeared. Cheryl Miller is also a Hellcat in 1991. She's in her mid-20s, beginning a career as a teacher. I met Crystal um, through our football team. So we have um, a mutual friend that decided um, he wanted to put a women's football team together. He played on a men's team. And so he asked Crystal and I to play on this brand new women's football team that had never played football before in our lives. And um, it was at the football field where Michael went missing. And there's Nova Lee. My name is Nova Lee Tinian. I've worked with the Correctional Service of Canada for coming up 30 years, and I was playing football with Crystal at the time of Michael's disappearance. And Kathy Brown. I played on the same football team as Michael's mom, Crystal. Joining and and playing organized sports uh, was a way to really meet a number of really great uh, friends and continued friendship. We're a pretty close-knit team that did a lot of activities together from, you know, camping to, you know, barbecues to other social events. Before you knew it, we had this great core group of girls that were, they're just lovely. Like they're, yeah. When we played football together, it was our whole social group. Skied in the winter, camped in the summers, you know, went to everybody's weddings and baby showers and all that kind of stuff. So we were really, really, really close. We did everything together. We were together all the time. We always had 
you know, we did parties and barbecues. We were close. We'd practice at least once a week. Then we'd go out for uh, dinner and always cocktails. We're always involved. Um, <laughs> it was fun. It was always fun. It was like Sundays was our day at, at the field. We were just looking for a fun physical activity to do. You know, you don't wear gear or anything. You're basically running with flags taped around your waist that people pull off. They're all attached with a Velcro belt. Yeah, and once we started, um, we really liked it and just continued playing and just got better. And we were super terrible at the beginning. <laughs> really, really terrible. We didn't even know the rules. You know, we had to learn how to run a, a pattern. We had to learn how to catch a ball. But that was part of the fun of it, too. You know, we were all learning together. Maybe that helped to develop our friendships. Crystal was the first of our friends to have, have a baby. So Michael was sort of, yeah, the first for all of us. <laughs> And, and he was brought to practices and games and everybody, yeah, everyone treasured Michael. He was the first. Michael becomes a beloved part of their football family. For me, it was really nice and interesting to see just them being a family. Um, you know, they were always doing things, or with Michael having, you know, play dates and barbecues, and he was always coming along to wherever the events were and, you know, just was kind of a, a, a bit of a center for them. You know, kind of doting on, on them, right? Crystal was just a very competent mom, just very calm and, and really, really good with Michael. You know, strict, you know, he didn't have a lot of freedom. He was, yeah, he was well-loved and he was a sweet, sweet little thing very happy child that was just, you know, obviously getting doted on. So with everyone else being one of the youngest, you know, first one to have children, right? So yeah, just always seemed to just be, you know, happy, happy-go-lucky. We would all just look after Michael, like he would sit on a blanket with us or whatever, like we did with any of the kids, like as more of our friends had kids. The afternoon of Sunday, March 24th, the day Michael disappears, all of these women are on the field and about to become a part of an unimaginable tragedy. It was like almost any other kind of morning. It was, um, it was nice out. It was just kind of getting organized and getting ready to head to the field and trying to get there a bit early. Yeah, it just was almost like a a regular kind of Sunday morning getting organized to to go down to the field and and, uh, and and meet up with the team and get ready to play. I had to line the game before we played, um, but I lived fairly close, so I was, there was a game before and I was lining and then I forgot something, so I had to run home and get, I don't know, whatever it was, whether I forgot my cleats or my uniform, I can't remember, but I did run home and come back. Um, and the weird thing, and I, like when I drove into the parking lot, um, I was a little bit late, so I was sort of rushing. And I remember looking up and, and seeing Bruce with Caitlin, holding Caitlin, just walking by the school. And I remember saying to myself, oh, there's Bruce and Caitlin. I wonder where Michael is. You know, that field was not that far from where I was living. So I got out of my car and kind of grabbed my stuff and was uh, making my way down to, uh, down to the field. Um, it's not that far, but you just have to walk across part of a field to get to, uh, to where we were playing. So by the park and, and just down. Definitely some kids there just did a quick look up and then um, I think it was just to the left of where I parked is where the, the playground was. And then I just kind of made my way down to the, down to the field. Some were there. Um, Crystal and Bruce were not there or Donna were not there yet. Um, but a few of the folks were there already. So kind of went down and we're just starting to chat a little bit. We had had a party the week before, two weeks before. 
it was um, St. Patrick's Day, right? And uh, Donna and Crystal and Bruce had showed up and where they parked, I was starting to walk towards them and Bruce had Caitlin on his belly, right? And he was walking towards the field where the game was going on. Because I think they had just left Michael. Michael wanted to go play in the park, right? So Donna and and, um, Crystal were walking towards me. Bruce was beside Crystal, right, walking with Caitlin. And I stopped and chatted with Dawn and, and Crystal because I had the uh, I had pictures from the party and I was showing them the pictures. Warming up, I don't believe we were even actually playing yet. And um, I remember that Michael had asked to go to the park and I just remember seeing Crystal talking with him and then he he went to the park. I didn't see him actually go there. I just know he did. I just want to go back to something you said. You you saw Crystal talking to Michael? I believe I did. I, I don't think I'm making that memory up. You might be the only person who I've talked to who who actually thinks they saw him. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would it would have been a glance. I would have just looked over. I didn't study them or watch them, but I feel like I saw her talking to him, yes. A game in progress. Two more teams arriving. The parking lot is busy, more than three quarters full. The small playground sits about 200 yards away from the field where Crystal's teammates are gathering. We just kind of got down to the field and you just start chatting and everyone starts arriving. Um, And so we were getting, just starting to get organized, getting, you know, everything kind of your bag down and unpacked because everyone kind of arrives all around the same time. So before the game starts, we always do a warm up. Yeah, just stretch, get, you know, if you had to tape up anything, you know, it was flag football with touch rules, so it wasn't contact. But yeah, just kind of making sure that uh, we were all kind of, you're there, you're stretching, you know, running a little bit just to make sure you don't injure yourself. And then, the moment, everything changes. Bruce was bringing down Caitlin and all of her stroller and stuff because at that time she was six months old and crystal was there and then i think somebody asked oh where um where michael was and they said oh he was just up at the park and that it was the first time they were having him at the park and that they were basically bruce was just dropping the stuff off uh, and then walked straight back to the playground michael's dad came and said i can't find michael so we instantly stopped exactly what we were doing and just started looking for him in the field the school grounds and the park and the like everywhere and and i remember just my girlfriend and i were looking together and we just looked at each other and went this only happens in movies this is not real bruce must have come and said crystal i you know called crystal away and then she came back and said Guys who can't find Michael, we need to go look. And that's when I saw Bruce. He was walking towards Blanchard, towards like the donut shop. And I think it was Crystal or Donna said, hey, can we uh, just take a few minutes? Michael, you know, we can't seem to find Michael, right? And we never played our game. It, It was really quick. I mean, I think he came back to say, you know, like right away, uh, kind of ran back to say, you know, that he couldn't see Michael. So um, everyone dropped uh, their stuff and ran up to search right away. Because sometimes, you know, kids that get can be a little bit mis- mis- mischievous, I think. So we were maybe just thinking that to start. I would say it was in a matter of, of minutes that uh, we had our entire team looking as well as a team that was going to play against us um, looking um, and at that point then I think when we realized he was missing they stopped the other game and everybody went to look. We were sort of pointed in a direction to go look because they thought she had wandered off and 
maybe he went with a friend or like a new friend or yeah so we just uh, you know split up and scoured the neighborhood um calling his name and screaming his name basically if i recall correctly there was another little boy playing in the park um son of uh, another person on another team whose son's name was also michael and and had blonde hair so it caused a little bit of confusion uh at first when people said no we got him but it wasn't like we found him but it wasn't michael it was the other michael i would say it was in minutes our team had started to look when we realized it was a little bit more frantic i would say it was like within 10 minutes there was folks starting to you know stop in the game and starting to kind of look beyond even kind of the area and going into more of the neighborhood so i was still in my uh shorts and and i believe i had my flags on we still had our uniforms on and we just started going knocking door to door right and we in the school where the school was there was like a housing complex right for low income families right and i kept on thinking you know come supper time you know somebody'll find an extra kid and and you know he'll get booted out and you know we we hung around that area where did he go he just kind of vanished into thin air by now bruce and crystal realize the police need to be called this is the time before cell phones bruce spots a man mowing his lawn across from the school and asks to use his phone the field is not far from downtown victoria and the police arrive quickly the hunt for michael escalates I mean I think at first we just kind of thought okay he's just maybe like any child wandered a bit and so um everybody was you know urgently looking um I think there was the point where it became probably a bit more frantic when when kind of recognized that it was more serious uh so at, at one point the uh when when the police we were just kind of looking in the area then the police did arrive and there was a uh community center a police community center or a community center close by and they opened up the doors police begin coordinating search efforts assigning areas to be checked by the growing number of people arriving to help scour the community here's how Cheryl remembers the neighborhood at the time It wasn't a great neighborhood, low-income um supportive housing along Blanchard Street, a bunch of apartments in behind that you know were lower rent, lots and lots of little kids, and that's why we sort of thought well maybe somebody said, "Hey Michael, do you want to go get a drink of water or do you want to go, you know, and so maybe he went with one of the kids." That sort of, you know, what we were thinking might have happened you know even though michael was told he wasn't allowed you know he was only four i probably stayed till midnight that night looking just in garbage cans knocking on doors yeah we went we would look in people's sheds we would look under their houses we knocked on doors um we looked in garbage dumps garbage cans anything that could possibly hold the ch- a child we looked in we all spread out and we start searching for him i do remember meeting up with bruce on the corner of cook and hillside and i think he was talking to a police officer and i said you better call the ferries like close down the ferries we looked like we walked around neighborhoods and knocked on doors and um you know peeked in backyards and knocked on trunks of cars and yeah just walked through the neighborhood for hours and hours and hours i was so frantic the women recall residents of the neighborhood responding with care and concern yes this is a community that is down on its luck but the searchers meet with no resistance as they begin their door to door inquiries But once the police arrive, the fear and anxiety and tension begin to ratchet up. Even in those early hours of the search, Corinne recalls the police trying to get a read 
on what they were dealing with. I remember they asked me specifically, were, were um, both parents there? Uh, and were they both the biological parents? Um, because a lot of times uh, in disappearance, it, it may be a parental dispute. That was one of their kind of first questions I recall them asking me. Uh, and, and we weren't even in the community center, it was out on the street. Um, so I think they were just kind of getting getting a feel for some information, right? When they realized that that was the case, then it became, uh, I sensed a little bit more urgency. You know, by that time, by the time the police arrived, I would say it was probably more frantic for everybody just because realizing that it was, everybody, you know, our emotions started to get to you because you were just a little bit more unheightened, like what the heck's going on, right? Little Victoria, right? Like nobody really expected anything to, to kind of happen, right? It was, you know, kind of what I would call maybe back in the day more of a sleepy little town, right? The perception of Victoria as a sleepy little town is one I will hear again and again. But this sleepy little region has multiple municipal police forces and several RCMP detachments. The police officers I speak with will talk about how busy they were then and now. I do remember uh, going home and stopping at a donut shop because um, what, the Esquimalt police were in this donut shop. So I went in there and I told him that Michael had gone missing. He knew exactly who Michael is because he knows Bruce and, and Crystal. But you know, you know Victoria, there's five different uh, police jurisdictions, right? but they have all the all different departments so and that was in 91 i don't think they were communicating you know with each other properly at that time you know what i mean it was just like a nightmare right like much is made of the extent to which all of the police forces in the area worked together on michael's case at the outset but I also occasionally hear questions raised about whether the fractured jurisdictions may have hampered the investigation. But no one is asking those kinds of questions on the night of the 24th. That night, the focus is 100% on finding Michael. At that point, they were sort of thinking that maybe Michael was trying to go home you know, walk home because he was scared and he didn't know where anybody was, so I'll just go to my house. And Crystal said that she felt he could walk home if he needed to. He knew the directions. I think we were still out walking around looking for Michael until like one o'clock in the morning. We were just so frantic. We were just running everywhere. Like, <laughs> it was horrible. And the thing that I remember in there, that I think in hindsight, nobody thought it was an abduction. Everybody just thought he had walked away. At one point in time, when it started to get dark uh, and started to cool off, um, I remember heading to uh, my parents' place to pick up um, some warmer jackets and some flashlights that they had. Uh, for us to search into the evening. And I just couldn't leave. Like, I just, I, I felt like if I left, I'd be letting him down. Um, and it was, and it was dark and we went to a donut shop at like 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever, I don't know. We met up there and um, chatted. A lot of people had gone home, but a lot, a lot of people had stayed. And uh, it was just, I just, I felt great amounts of guilt leaving when I even when I did but I mean you have to right through the night I think it was about two or three in the morning that I came home for a rest I lived at, uh, downtown and I think it was I had fallen asleep and I think about five or six I could hear the helicopters because at that point they had also brought in uh, helicopters to kind of search from the air and I could hear the helicopters kind of coming back and forth By that evening, more and more volunteers are joining the search. 
posters with pictures of Michael are printed and distributed so people will know who they are searching for. Up next, word begins to reach friends and family beyond the field, and a young detective is called in to help. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split-screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Sunday, March 24th. Michael has now been missing for hours. The police have been called in. Community members are joining the search as word spreads that a four-year-old boy is missing. It's 1991. This is Victoria, an island city. Just about the last place you might expect a child to disappear. Oh, God. I still remember, like, the day even getting the call. Everything about it was um, was just bizarre. Okay, my name is Glennis Russell, and... Um, I met Crystal back in 1985, before she had Michael, and we were, we started a football team together called the Hellcats. She's a few years older than us, kind of the grandma of the team, even though she was probably only 23, 24 at the time. Glennis recalls the good times she shared together with the Dunahee's young family. So Michael was born in May, and then um, almost two years later in February, um, I had my first child, and it was just fun. They would We lived in Victoria at the time with my first husband, and they would come over, and we only had a little two-bedroom house, and they would put, um, Eric would be in her crib, and I had a little twin bed in, in Erica's room, and they would put Michael into sleep in there so we could visit because I was like way out of town like back then it's not way out of town now but it was out in Millstream area where nobody lived but that's where we had bought and so they'd come out and visit us and bring and bring Michael when he was little and they were just fun people we did a lot of stuff together as a team we did a lot of camping trips we used to go up to Duncan and play and and because Michael was the first kid in the in our group or whatever he was always part of pretty much everything we did he just he came he did came to football tournaments with us. He was just, I don't know, I'm probably going to start crying. The friendships, the bonds made through the team, are tight. The tragedy of Michael's disappearance colors those memories bittersweet. But Glennis still recalls the joy of the game itself. So I loved it because it was was in wicked shape and, and it was a team thing. It was fun to do. Because Glennis is so close to the Dennehy family, it is devastating for her to experience this tragedy from afar. It was horrible. You're just, you just, you just can't believe it. You just, oh, he's going to show up. He's going to show up. He's wandered off somewhere. You can't do anything. Glennis's parents are still in Victoria, and they lend an early hand in the search efforts. My parents owned a logging company, and they had a whole bunch of Vancouver Island helicopter hours. So, I mean, my dad donated those instantly and there was, you know, to have the helicopters up there looking because, of course, they knew Bruce and Crystal too, right? We would have, uh, they know them before I was even married, right? Because I was only 19 when I met Crystal and I think she was 23 or whatever. So we would have parties at our house on Gorge and that. So they knew Crystal and Bruce very well too and they knew little Michael and it seems so weird that it just went. It just went like that. Just nobody saw anything like Glennis wasn't playing that day, but she shares some very specific memories of the field itself. That was probably my least favorite field to play, and not to stereotype, but there's some pretty scummy low-light, you know, rentals around there and that, but it's kind of busy there right on Quadra, too, so it's 
it's not as picturesque, if you will. And then there's like all the sort of townhouses and everything all around there. Just kind of run down, like a little bit run down, if you will. I don't know. Like I say, I, I don't I don't think I've ever, ever told anybody that. But I guess if you were in a great big, you know, we're a place with a lot of fields, some of the other places we went to, it would have been virtually impossible for anybody to grab him because you wouldn't have had any sort of buildings around either, right? Thinking of the field, recalling that unsettling period of time, also brings back memories of Michael. I think the biggest thing I remember about Michael wouldn't be so much games or practices. It'd remember like we'd go up camping to um, Duncan every year. The Duncan used to have a big May long tournament where teams would come over from Vancouver and everything, and our team would all camp. He was just there. He was just this little, and I've always liked little kids, so even though I would have been younger too, he was just, he was a good little boy. He would just sort of, you know, toddle around the campground and like with it, with us all there. Like if we were sitting around, you know, visiting in the morning, eating our breakfast before the games, he was just, you know, I can picture him like if it was a little drizzly, he'd have his little rain jacket on. And it's just, he was just had a very good, mellow, cute little personality. You just, just picture him with his, his little blue eyes and his little hair would get all messy up on the top. And he was just like a little boy boy, like everything you would think of, like a little boy just fucking around. And it was very good. Like I don't remember very few times Bruce and Michael not being at the games watching us play. And not once does it ever occur to Glennis, at the time or down the years, that anyone she knew could have been involved in Michael's disappearance. 100%, 100%. At no time would I have, did I ever, or ever heard of any of our group of friends or anything, ever think it was like an inside job. No, it's, um, it, it would be, it would be somebody that nobody knew. It was just like, who could have done this? Not. No, never wondering, was it someone, you know, related to them or someone that we knew? No. I'm John Ducker. I retired from the Victoria Police in 2013 as the Deputy Chief of Police. And I was one of the investigators on the Dunahee case, although a very junior investigator at the time. John is born in Victoria, raises his family in the community, and is now retired there too. Watching old archival tape of the Dunahee case, John stands out as the police officer with an impressively thick mustache. In March of 1991, John Decker, a young investigator, is called in to assist in the case. I was... uh working in uh, the sex crime section at that time when the uh, Dunahee file came in. And uh, every detective in the Victoria Police Detective Division was assigned to the Dunahee file. It's early in his career, but he's far from a rookie. By 1991, John has worked on patrol and in squad cars. He's done a stint in traffic. He's been a dog handler. He is in the sex crimes unit when he is assigned to the Dunahee case got a, uh, a call from the one of, one of these senior sergeants who was in charge, a guy by the name of John Smith. He said, uh, we're calling everybody in. This, this looks like uh, this kid has disappeared under unusual circumstances and we need uh, everybody to come in and start uh, working on tips. John remembers getting to work as quickly as he could and remaining on the job without a day off for almost three weeks. Every detective, you know, whether they were working in fraud or sex crimes or major crimes or or whatever was on the file. And uh, a number of patrol people uh, were uh, seconded up to the second floor detective office to, uh, you know, work the phones. And then also at the same time, there was a, a job, a capacity organized at the patrol level to, you know, coordinate ground searching and to thoroughly and physically scour the area uh, where Michael had last been seen. It was definitely an all-hands-on-deck. We've never really dealt with something like this before. You know, we had to ensure we were making a maximum effort. In those first few days of the search and the beginning of the investigation, 
He describes how Victoria's police force tries to manage what will become one of the largest cases in Canadian history. The protocol at that time was uh, uh, using what they called a tip system. And uh, there would be some officers uh, staffing the phones and um, the, the tips would be, this is, this is before you know, computers became mainstream in policing. So there would be tips that came in and um, were car carded uh, literally with uh, carbon paper cards. And, uh, and then they would go into a bin and you know, people in charge would uh, apportion those cards to people and you were given files um, to work on based on those, on those tips. Um, and everybody had a handful of tips and where to start follow-up investigations and, uh, and track down uh, whatever information was alluded to on these tip forms. This is 1991. Computers are just becoming more commonplace in offices and homes across Canada. the Victoria Police will get a new computer system in place to try to manage the flow of information on the Dunahee case. And while this may seem like a dreary little piece of administrative detail, it really is key. This file is ballooning, and tips are already beginning to become unmanageable. I asked John Decker to think back and try to recall the nature of the tips that were coming in in those early days. Right. Well, they, you know, there were, you know, a number of suspicious vehicles seen in the area at that time, you know, a, a brown van, a green and sort of yellow van or a brown car. You would go and see if you could track down uh, this van. And then there were, um, there were names of people that, uh, you know, members of the public thought might have been suspicious. They saw this guy in the area, you know, so you would have to go and try and find these people and interview them and uh, get a sense if uh, they were involved in, in anything. That brown van that John Decker mentions will become one of the biggest leads in the investigation. The true value of that tip is unclear. But as this and other tips roll in and word spreads, it becomes increasingly obvious that the Dunahee case will be challenging to coordinate. Well, bearing in mind that it was still a manual system, so there was a lot of uh, meetings during the day to kind of coordinate what various uh, people were working on. But uh, I mean, it was pretty pretty clear from the outset that this was uh, going to be an overwhelming file. There was uh, a lot of effort made in those meetings to make sure that we were trying to make as, as good a progress as we could make in terms of uh, not duplicating efforts and understand what uh, everyone else uh, was doing. If anything became more than a little bit suspicious, then these were raised up to the senior sergeants and the detective staff sergeant. and. Uh, the inspector in charge to make sure that uh, you know the more seasoned investigators were put on those to, to try and run them to ground as quickly as possible. It's an intense period, with everyone aware that time is not on their side. There was a lot of uh, a lot of pressure in that period because um, you know there was a great sense of uh, you know the clock was running down here and. You know from experiences with other jurisdictions that um, you, know, you have to really move hard on these things within the first 72 hours and uh, so that that pressure was very evident and um, based on the national and international media exposure and the amount of uh, tips that were coming in it was uh, you know it was there was a lot of a lot of psychological pressure there for sure to uh, try and get through as many of these things uh, as you thought were possible. You had to still do a very thorough job and not try and uh, overlook anything, um, which which is difficult when you're trying to move fast. So that 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 was my my sense of it that uh, you had to move very quickly, but uh, be as thorough about things as you possibly could. And so, in those early days, John is following up on tips. 
we had to go out into the neighborhood and uh, and speak to a lot of a lot of people. So there wasn't uh, there wasn't hardly any uh, video recording uh, like you see today. Uh, so there were a few of those, and those uh, surveillance systems had to be had to be looked at. But uh, there wasn't very much of that at the time. But so mainly it was. Uh, interviewing people and if they were uh, suspected in any way trying to establish uh, an alibi for where they were uh, at the time of the disappearance. Uh, it was a lower working class neighborhood. Uh, it was an old neighborhood of Victoria, older homes. It was a, a high call load area for patrol people. Uh, a lot of uh, you know social issues around domestic uh, assaults and, and kids hanging around and um, petty thefts and things like that, but still kind of a strong neighborhood in its own right. I mean, I know that there were lots of people who, who have lived there all their life. I mean, I think uh, mostly uh, people were more than, more than willing to help. It was, um, you know, evident, at least at the, at the, on the surface, that, uh, you know, people understood what was at stake here and were, and were cooperating. And, you know, they were allowing you to look in their yards or look in their homes if you, if you asked to do so. And um, the detective function is a little different rather than kind of just searching around. It's really um, establishing that uh, while I was, I was here, I was working at this time and then immediately getting on to the employer or workmate to confirm that the, the person was actually there. Thirty years on, John Decker is still hoping that the right tip will finally lead to answers on the file. There, there's two things that I always think about is one is that there's going to be that phone call. There's going to be that uh, discussion that joins two uh, tracks together, and the light bulb will go off, and, and there'll and there'll be a lead. And the other thing I think about is that who's ever involved may have a change of mind, or more particularly, a change of heart, and make the call, or write the letter, or uh, leave it in the will, or something bizarre like that, that'll open up the pathway to finding out what happened. So I, I, I believe Michael's still around and I'll never give up that belief until it's proven otherwise. John Decker was feeling the intense pressure on the police in those early days of the investigation. And that pressure was also being felt by the Hellcats. I learn teammates are asked to go under hypnosis. We were all hypnotized to try to remember something. Oh, wait, okay. I, I had not heard that detail before. Tell me about that. Um, so we all went down to the police station and I don't remember how late it was after it happened, but a group of people that they felt were driving into the parking lot right around the potential time Michael went missing. Um, we were hypnotized and for me, I don't think I fell under hypnosis like I or I or if I was, I didn't have any. There was no groundbreaking anything. But so who who's doing the hypnosis? I don't you know what I don't even remember, but it was someone through the police. Huh. So the police department had someone come and um, hypnotize people on the team. I was heading towards them, towards the parking lot and where the, the um, playground was. They tried to hypnotize me to see if I had anything in my subconscious, but I couldn't get hypnotized for whatever reason. They couldn't draw it out of me. I couldn't recall it, and yeah, and I don't remember it. And I, I know I didn't remember it then, and I don't remember it now. Now, right? I know I went under hypnosis. I know a number of my friends did as well. Yeah, it was um, the first time I've ever um, been under um, hypnosis, and it was really just trying to recall any details of the route, starting from leaving at home, the route down to uh, the field and getting out of your car and what you might have seen. 
or not seen. The Hellcats are not just possible witnesses. As you have heard, these are people who are close to the Dennehy's. I, I mean, they questioned all of us. You know, I, I can't recall the 30 years ago all the questions that they asked, but, but they did. And I would say that, um, I guess maybe it was five years ago, they, they requested um, follow, like to, to have another interview uh, with as many people uh, that were there. Um, so I know I went down to the police station here in Victoria and had probably about two hour interview with them. Um, so they did interview all of us, you know, at least from the close circle, but I'm not sure beyond that if they, how much further they would have gone out. There wasn't anything at that time that would have said, oh, oh what the heck is going on with, with, with anybody. Um, there wasn't anything that kind of triggered anybody for having any concerns. For those who know and love Michael, that pressure, that trauma, creates a lifelong link. We kept playing. You know, we stayed together um, for Crystal, I think, you know. In some ways, it, it brought us closer. You know, we needed to be there for Crystal and Bruce um, for the support. You know, I think Crystal needed a positive outlet with her friends. And I think the football in itself was something positive just because. And I, I think it was good for Crystal to be able to run and play and do something that was, you know, sort of fun. <laughs> Well, you don't, you don't have any words to even say anything to Crystal and Bruce, you know, like, you just hug them. <laughs> you know, every, um, I go to the walk every year and I cry every year. You know, what do you do? It's so unfair and so hard. Crystal's probably the strongest woman I know, so it probably bonded us together even more. You know, we obviously, we, we took s some time off from playing um, as a team. You get, you, you go through some numbness, and then I think you just try and figure out how to support each other. But then we we regrouped and kind of came back, but I think it, 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 it probably bonded our friendships um, more so. And, and, you know, even, you know, 30 years later, you maybe don't see everybody as often, but you're still in contact with, 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 with pretty well everybody. You know, when you have those friends or whatever, and then you, you can go 10 years, 15 years, and then you can see them and it's like nothing changed. They're just very easy. Bruce always calls me Rosie. It's an old story, but, you know, when I've seen them, you know, he's like, hey, Rosie, like, and they had a very nice kid, like, they have a very nice kid, I and mean, he's being an adult now. But he was just the nicest, nicest little boy. Like, just like they were good parents. You know, when I I've tried over the years to make it back for the Michael Dunahee runs and stuff, or if I'm going to Victoria to coordinate a weekend where I can take part in that. You know what? At least once a month, this crosses my mind. What happens if they never get answers? I just pray that whatever the outcome is for Bruce and Crystal, they that they get an answer before one day they die. Well, I just think the strength of Crystal and Bruce, and I know that's probably already evident, but they they were incredible. And, and I just, we just loved them so much. And I just wish for a positive outcome. You know, we were Crystal's family for a long time and, and she was part of our family for a long time. Like we, we have, you know, growing up, that was our little group, and, you know, it meant a lot to all of us. To this day, Crystal's friends support Bruce and Crystal in keeping the hope alive that Michael will someday be found. You know, you have to hold out hope. There's nothing to indicate not to have hope. There are stories that you see where, you know, children are, are found after many, many years, and you know, I think it's, I think, you know, you do need to keep that hope alive. I do believe he's alive, though. I just do. I really do. 
I think so. I think so because I just sort of really believe a mother's intuition. I just think because she believes so strongly in it and I don't know, I guess I'm very superstitious myself and when I really believe something, I, it usually happens. So I just, when I have a feeling about my own kids and that, I'm usually right. She knows in her heart that he's still alive, like as a mom, you know, that connection, right? Maybe one day Michael is going to do one of those DNA tests and find out that he is who he is and not who he thinks he is. And that's how I like to think things are going to end. So yeah, I still hope. During my conversation with retired Deputy Chief John Decker, he reminds me he wasn't the lead on Michael's case at the time. He was a junior, and that I should try to speak with the investigators who had conduct of the case over the years. And so I do. And in the episodes to come, you'll hear from three of the leads on the Michael Dunahee case, beginning in episode three, the investigation with retired detective Sergeant Don Bland. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahee loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The Turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Island Crime, Season 3, Missing Michael. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. Plus. 